0: Welcome back, everyone, to R2Cast number 162. Last episode we had was with Liz Haynes. Liz Haynes' episode had been one um, I've been quite interested for a while because it was about neuro- neurodiversity in agriculture. Um, and not just, you know, an interest of Liz's. Liz last year was diagnosed with ADHD, um, which, she, in her words, she was always aware... There was something, she just hadn't been able to put her finger on it. And she said that helped a lot of things. And in some cases, didn't change a lot of things. Um, But it's really quite interesting because certainly working in my line of work, you're working with a lot of students, you know, probably in the ballpark of 110, 120 a year. And um, because of that, your eyes are opened up to so many things, you know. Um, And neurodiversity, I've said on numerous occasions, is such a brilliant word, I think. And it's a word that has probably made it so much better for a demographic that used to just be called disabled. And I think that is a brilliant thing to happen. Um, So, yeah, Liz is doing uh, her Nuffield scholarship this year, one of the same cohort as myself. um, And, yeah, a good episode to go check out there. The next episode we'll have is another Nuffield scholar next week, or the next episode, I should say, with Amy Stoner. Amy is looking at food security, another interesting topic. And I I can't exactly say, you know, um, any of the Nuffield topics aren't interesting because I don't think they'd be Nuffield topics if they weren't. Um, But Amy sort of jumps out to me for the reason that my master's was food security. So um, yeah, it could be quite cool to have that chat. And today, well actually just before we mention today, one more I'll mention is um, back in episode number 147, me thinking I was really cool, I brought on a snooker player uh, for episode 147, which I thought was hilarious because of the break number, knowing nothing about snooker. But I've also just done the same for darts so up in 18 episodes from now we'll have the big 180 um, and I have currently got two people I don't actually know who's going to be number 180 at this point but one person who is the current number 34 in the world and one person who has been number four in the world so quite interesting a lot going on in the all-in side of things as well and um, today on that Nuffield um, sort of path I guess uh, we continue with that and like I said about Liz and Amy's stories this is another one that really interests me and one I got speaking about before the Nuffield conference uh, over a burger and whatever I can't remember the night before which was quite good um, and a topic that we speak about a lot on the podcast but don't really go in too much depth because I think it's very much a, a big topic well it's not a big topic it's probably the topic in farming at the minute and um, but a lot of sort of uncertainty around it, and that's what uh, today's guest's Nuffield is on. But before we talk about that, I'm going to pass you on to introduce yourself to Hattie McFadden. Hattie, would you like to say hello?
1: Yeah, sure. Thanks, Wallace. Um, yeah, everyone, Hattie I uh, Don't know what else to say about myself <laughs> at this point, if I'm honest. I grew up in Cambridge and, as you said, uh, have a kind of career built around sustainability in agriculture, specifically livestock, so... Yeah, looking forward to
0: being on the podcast. Just before we get started with another episode of the R2Cast, I would like to thank our primary sponsors, Howden Rural, formerly known as Aplan Rural. Howden are heavily involved in the social media scene in the ag space with over 100,000 followers on Instagram. They use this following to host social media takeovers with farmers throughout the country to showcase their stories, as well as posting to their rural community blog with further articles about these people in the sector. On top of this, they like to support initiatives that are championing the British agricultural industry, such as myself. So thank you to Howden Rural for that. No, looking forward to having you on. It's it's um you know, something really jogged my memory or not my memory, my mind I guess, a couple of months ago. Scottish Agricultural Awards came about, there's been the Farmers Weekly Awards, there's been the British Farming Awards and all this sort of stuff and and Scottish Farmer wanted to get involved. Also one of my my sponsors here with the podcast um, and created the Scottish Farming Awards. It was a brilliant night. But uh, one of the, what would you call it, the categories was called Sustainable Farm of the Year. And someone had commented saying, this shouldn't be a category, this should just be the case. And I was like, yes, never considered that. Now, considered it, on the basis that that should be the case, but never fully sort of put, put like a sort of thought to it. And it's true. I think, you know, we talk about sustainability and we talk about agriculture and a lot of people talk about those two things in silos, which they really shouldn't be. You know, they should just be together. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of mad. That there's the concept of unsustainable agriculture out there, you know? um, When, when did that interest come about, Hattie? Because you, you you weren't raised on a farm or anything like that. Um, where did that come from?
1: So, yeah, you're right. I, I grew up in Cambridgeshire, um, not on a farm. Both of my parents did grow up on farms, um, so was very much inspired by them. They, you know, they talk about it very positively. Spent my summers um, either, you know, visiting granddad on on his farm or up with with my aunt, who's uh, up in kind of North Yorkshire, uh, very much still integrated with with that kind of thing. So... There was always like a love for for agriculture and farming and and that kind of thing. And I, I definitely, I know that I view it with rose-tinted glasses because I've never had to pull like, you know, the long days or anything like that. Um, so that, yeah, that love of agriculture was really what, what started it all. Um, I think I was in the very common case for a lot of people that grew up on farm that I didn't realise I could get into farming. Um, When I was younger, so I went, I actually went down the economics route, did my degree in economics. Uh, At the end of that degree kind of realized that I, I didn't want to go into finance. I didn't want to be a banker. I'm not driven by that. Um, But took a couple of modules on climate economics and environmental economics and how the economy changes when there are scarce resources around, which I really found fascinating it's that combination of you know the love that you have for agriculture and the environment and this like fear that it's all going to go up in flames one day which um thankfully um i now have a, a more balanced view <laughs> on on what might happen but um yeah i went through that way uh entered it really I've got a masters of uh climate science um and re kind of positioned myself to join agriculture from from that perspective really to to marry the two
0: together you know uh, there must be a lot of people i've had in this podcast i mean think probably think of four or five in the last 20 episodes where people have went to uni to do something whatever mm-hmm. and they've had one or two modules and they're like hmm <laughs> no, i quite like that uh, and it's just completely changed their path like completely and uh, not completely but you know in some cases completely in some cases kind of um what was what was climate science masters like because that could be interpreted in a lot of ways. What did that involve
1: yeah it so it did go through the science of carbon cycle and how to model changes that might happen um to our kind of um our climate in the uk for example, which also feeds into to where I am with nuffield now um but it also looked at you know how the countries who obviously we developed with the industrial revolution and that was very carbon heavy what opportunities are there for countries to to develop in a green way and um yeah the politics of that and the conversations involved in that as well so it was very much balanced science with kind of the the policy side of things as well
0: it is it is an interesting topic because it's climate science isn't one well it certainly wasn't a term I does as i I'm not going to say kid because I wasn't really into master stuff when I was a kid. But, you know, even when I was at, at degree level in agriculture, certainly maybe I was hidden from it and that agriculture wasn't at that stage embarrassingly as a sector 10 mm-hmm. years ago. Um, But it certainly wasn't a thing that I'd come up with, I'd really been aware of. and I think we've had four or five people with that master's on the podcast now, you know, and... It just it just feels like one of those masters that must be ever growing very quickly growing um you know a lot of people taking that on and, and sort of moving into that space um would how did the discussions go you said it was always sort of putting a positive light from your parents you know your parents have been brought up in farming but not not now in it yeah. um did I, I've come from a farm that also my parents are obviously on the farm and I'm always quite interested in that well, my parents aren't from this, but they're still making me want to go there. Did yeah. did they actively make you want to do that, or was it just oh that sounds nice?
1: No, they. they I mean, they never they never pushed it. They're quite surprised that I'm now in this sector. I mean, they're they're happily surprised. My older brother is currently in New Zealand and has has worked on farms and that kind of thing. So they're both of them are quite surprised that you know they've left the farm, but both of their kids is end up end up in the the sector again. Um, it was more. You know what it's like Your your parents are telling stories at, at the dinner table and that kind of stuff so there was there was no sugar coating mm-hmm. on what it was like <laughs> some of the stories are quite quite tough and that kind of thing as well but i think it was the ability it it takes up so much of the conversation in in kind of family reunions and when when you're visiting family um it was definitely like a bit of a a happy place to be running around making tea for for whoever on farm and and seeing the cows and and everything like that so i think it was just embedded that way and then it's kind of you you care about it because it's part of your your family and your heritage and, and that kind of thing um i definitely if i could redo my journey up until this point i would still want to be in the same position but i want i would have wanted to you know spend a few years on on farm particularly dairy farm to really get that side of it as well um but you never know maybe maybe i'll i'll do that in the future for a few years
0: Career shift. <laughs> um you mentioned the sort of rose tinted glasses at the start which i think is a real th- i mean like it is a real thing and yeah. it sort of plays into the whole uh, what's the what's the term grass is always greener you know oh that sounds fun everything i see about this thing's perfect but in mm. truth you're, you're not seeing it all when you saw it all and you began to realize of i don't want to say the bad stuff but just the stuff that isn't you know promoted as the perfect perfect reality did yeah. did that hit you and you were like oh this is different or were you just as it's just this is how it goes this is it
1: yeah definitely it's something i still worry about today really because i mean in my my job i meet a lot of farmers and i go on farm um most weeks and we're having a chat and a cup of tea and looking around and stuff and there's a lot of stress there's a lot of stress that people are, are dealing with which i think it continually surprises me. Just, I mean, I know that we we've had exits and that kind of thing, and it's a massive shame. And I'm not I'm not surprised about those exits because of the amount of stress that we hear about. I mean, labor, rising input costs, but policy changes or new requirements from retailers and processors and that kind of thing. It can it can add a lot, can't it? Because I mean, with farming, you don't log off. <laughs> you don't log off, and then. um, think about something else it's it's kind of it's always there so yeah it, it always surprises me but and it, I think going back when I was I mean when I was older and asking my parents well why why didn't you go into farming or why did granddad stop milking cows and go to sheep and then eventually go to arable and it was all all kind of um industry pressures which Again, has led me to sustainability. Like we we talk about sustainability a lot of the times. We talk about carbon. Um, that's a whole different conversation. I I, I, like I do I do really believe in in carbon accounting and that kind of thing. Also because it's so highly linked to cost effectiveness. They're they're so correlated, but mm-hmm. also we need to extend sustainability as as you were saying before to include financial sustainability labor sustainability like all of these things um so yeah there's
0: there's a massive weight, and i think you know <clears throat> at the time we're recording this will be a few weeks ago by the time this episode's released um is it aid Apatan, i think the guy's name is the paralympic basketball player oh. uh has uh, i think what was the, the name of the TV show? I can't remember. It was basically slamming the beef industry um, and sort of saying chicken's better in it. I'll be honest, Hattie, I don't watch TV. My students come in and get angry at me and we have a chat and I sort of look into things. But um, yeah, I mean, what, how many sectors are in a, a position that, a nice tv show can come on and absolutely slam what you're doing when you mm. know 99 percent of the tech there's issues of course there is there's a lot of issues and we'll have to work on that and there's bad eggs like there is you know everywhere um but yeah it's just it is tough and it's it's kind of yeah it is a bit worrying to it when you think about that isn't it you know you look at the rose tinted glasses and and i'll be honest when i preface that question i was probably more thinking of did you see issues with welfare or sustainability and whatever, but really what you're talking about is that sort of humanitarian level. Like we've got to consider that farmers are people and farmers are out there. And it's, it's a lot of weight. Absolutely. And it's it's something that mental health and agriculture has been become a pretty major movement for, for all the right reasons. I mean, we're seeing, seeing, I think as an industry embarrassing numbers of, of, mental health issues that are leading to pretty serious things you know and it's it's uh yeah you're absolutely right i would just like to quickly interrupt the show for a minute to give you some extra information about our primary sponsors howden rural the new name for a plan rural howden rural provide bespoke insurance cover for farms and estates this could be for anything from tractors and machinery to a new exciting diversification venture be sure to check out howden rural today it's, I think I've had quite a lot of people on the podcast now, at least 162. I would guess well in advance of 200 because I've grouped podcasts and stuff. But I don't think of any, I've ever had someone that's done this. And I'm going to say it and then I'll be wrong. I'll be quite embarrassing. But I think I'm right in saying you spent some time in, is it Myanmar? Myanmar, Burma, yeah. whatever, you know. Um, First off, a, fin- a absolutely fascinating country. From what I understand, like, now my knowledge of the world is based on capital cities and reading into all this stuff, and I absolutely can never pronounce it's capital city. But um, is it Njepur? I'm going to say it wrong. Anyway, don't matter. They basically created this phenomenally progressive city, but no one seems to use it. <laughs> no one seems to be there. Yeah, <laughs> that's my understanding. Is that right or is that? Yeah, completely...
1: so they've, it's called Napidor. Yeah, um...
0: Njepur was close enough, but not. Great. <laughs>
1: Yeah, it's so Napidor is the yeah, it's the government capital, it's the official capital. Um, but you only go there if you have a meeting with with government. Um, so it's this very weird set out with everything you can't walk to anything. It's it's drivable. Um, you know, if you've if there's a building and then five minutes down the road there's another building. It's it's very scarce, but you have oh, okay. these these big buildings there that are government departments and then the hotels, that service, you know, ministers who, and there are houses there as well. Um, uh, <laughs> but yeah. And they have these, um, multi lane highways. I think there's about eight lanes or something yeah. like that, that of ne- no traffic, no build up, anything like that. So it's, yeah, it's quite interesting. Um, I think the military government built it, uh, in the last coup, um, so they could, ha- yeah, they could have Napidor. But obviously everything else goes on in Yangon, where I, I lived. Um, that's the kind of uh, economic capital kind and of why thing.
0: Why is that? Is, is Napidor just extortionate? Or what? Like, I mean, for my understanding was they had a, I don't want to say dictator if that's wrong, but they had a leader that was a bit crazy from my understanding and basically made policies to make life difficult. <laughs> yeah. I seem to be what yeah is that great, and then yeah, um progressing onto this, what from the outskirts and from looking down on a drone or whatever just looks like this mega progressive city um yeah. is is it expensive or is it just you don't go there because you get in trouble, or what's the reason
1: uh I think it's more because I mean culturally, Yangon is the capital city it has you know it has been for a long time, um so you have as such a you know people who have been there. For, for generations of course, and it's very densely populated. And then when you suddenly kind of build a city, it I think it takes a while for businesses to move because they're like, hang on, all the people are, are in Yangon. Um, which I think is is the main reason. There's obviously a lot of other political sensitivities. If you don't necessarily like the military government, then you're you're probably not gonna um, go over there either um, and stay in stay in Yangon. So, yeah, I'm no, I'm definitely no political commentator on on the country, but I don't see Napidor becoming the new Yangon um, anytime soon. <laughs>
0: yeah, how far apart are these two cities? Uh,
1: they're a day trip.
0: Oh right, okay. Correctly. yeah.
1: yeah um, it was definitely a you know I didn't go there a lot. I think I went there three times over the the two and a half years or something like that, and only to to meet kind of. Um, farming and fisheries government um, ministers and things like that but um, yeah it's it's quite a way
0: what's the what's the language there uh
1: the majority language is burmese right um, and then you have so it's a it's a, a country built up of a lot of states which um you know if you'd drawn the boundaries different you would have a uh, different kind of majority languages but um yeah the majority is uh, burmese
0: are you fluent in burmese
1: I'm absolutely not. <laughs> I got to an okay level, um, you know, like conversationally, uh, but yeah, I've yeah, you know, it's been how long has it been now? Two years or something since uh since I went there, and I definitely haven't kept it up, unfortunately.
0: <laughs> and, and what what's the reason? Because you speak to you know like our parents, they would all say Burma, and in, yes. in my head it's always been, and I never know if I'm saying it right if it's me and or Myanmar, but. Yeah. Why is that? <laughs> did that happen with that coup as well? or? It, yeah, so it did. Um, so um,
1: I still use Burma, to be fair, because so Burma was uh, the name decided by General Ansang, which is very much the people's hero of, of Burma. Uh, then the military coup happened and it was kind of like that stamp of this is we are ruling this this country now. Um, let's change the name. So a lot of a lot of people actually believe that Myanmar is different. I'm gonna butcher this explanation so much, but it's actually something to do with the phonetic spelling of Burma or something like that that it's actually not that different from Burma, right. um, which is quite interesting. But so some people like Myanmar because Burma Burma's name originated from the Burma ethnicity, which is the majority ethnicity so some people like Myanmar because you know it's more representative um of different ethnicities that make up Myanmar right and then some people criticize it because they're like actually it's not that different um not that different a name so yeah that's the two. Um,
0: Oh, just as you were saying that I was googling the exact same thing and yeah I mean like up until probably about 17 seconds ago I thought Myanmar was the new name you know I thought it Yes, you might still say Burma, but I thought it never existed before, whenever this all happened. Yeah. Um, yeah, in practice, however, both terms have been used for centuries. Burma became the country's official name under colonial rule and stuck after independence. We use primarily in spoken language, whereas Myanmar was the formal term generally used in written communication. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it's, you know, if, if you were to ask, again i'm I'm sort of referring back to to times purely based on parents age, which is a really weird thing to do, but I'm doing it anyway if if I was to mention Burma to my mom and dad, they'd probably think of of turmoil pretty pretty tough times um Is that just not the case now? Is it a really nice place to live for?
1: No, so unfortunately um it was open again uh, and that's when i I moved there um and it, Aung San Suu Kyi um was democratically elected leader but then unfortunately the pandemic the coup happened again uh. so she's she's now under house arrest um and there was there was massive conflict um which you know I I had left two months before that not knowing a coup, coup was going to happen um so you know for a lot of Burmese friends and and that kind of thing. It was it was a bit of a tough time. It's settled down now, but there is still big resistance um, to the coup happening. So, yeah, there was a period of of kind of open uh, open trade, people going over and living there, um, and vice versa. But unfortunately, now it's it's regressed into dictatorship again.
0: And yeah, <laughs> I'm going to butcher the name An Shi, Is that right?
1: An Sang Succi
0: yeah, yeah. So it's like kyi isn't it yeah yeah right okay so i've been saying that entirely wrong um she, she was good though wasn't she she was
1: yeah she yeah. she was for the majority good i think a lot of people weren't impressed with how she handled sorry this is going to go into a really dark
0: place but no, but it's interesting, how, eh? it's really...
1: how she had handled the genocide of the rohingya people Right. So the Rohingya people are a group of Muslims who live in uh, West Rakhine, and unfortunately, um, they a genocide occurred whilst I mean whilst I was there, but it, it had been building for for decades. Um, and she didn't. I think a lot of people, because she's always been a freedom fighter, thought that she would maybe extend that courtesy to to the Rohingya. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, it was. Very quiet about it, so people then, you know, got a got a bit, a bit, a bit of a, uh, yeah, a, a difficult view. Now, obviously, the coup has happened, so there is a greater, greater evil yeah. happening, and um, so a lot of people look to Ansan Suji again for that freedom fighting. Um, but yeah, there's a there's a a lot of kind of Burmese activists um, that definitely sum it up way way more eloquently than, it, than i can but yeah she's it was quite interesting when she came to power and and handled those conflicts um
0: yeah so if if you or i were interested to go there currently would that just be not i wouldn't possible? advise it yeah you would advise it it would be that you know, sort of thing yeah right. yeah not
1: at all I'd, i have had some some uh friends who have have gone for work but yeah, is on tourism. It's also kind of, it's that really hard line between, you know, if I can go, you would be supporting, you know, the the tourism industry there, which is struggling. However, the military tax so many goods. You're also kind of supporting military dictatorship. So it's a it's a bit of a yeah. I would I would personally recommend against it but as soon as it's open i would i would hugely recommend visiting it's just it's an absolutely beautiful country the people are um are absolutely lovely uh the cuisine is incredible if you're a foodie um because it's it's situated in between uh thailand china bangladesh and india so it borders
0: all of them. good places
1: <laughs> yeah so you can see like if you travel around you can you can absolutely see those influences um yeah burmese cuisine is is yeah one of the best in my opinions
0: <laughs> it's um w- would you go as far as saying you know when you came back was lucky timing very lucky you, timing yeah you would have struggled to get out or
1: i would have struggled to get out yeah i, I would have gotten out um because, you know, they did put flights on for uh, people trying to escape, but there was a period of time where there was just absolute rioting um, all over the place, especially in, in the place where I, I lived, Sanchang. Um, so it would have been a struggle. I think a lot of people, um, obviously my local friends over there just had to hunker down and kind of uh, wait out. And then uh, friends from, Kind of Europe and America, it we're in the same boat. You just have to kind of stay inside until fighting kind of stops, and then get to the airport type of thing. So it was yeah, it's a bit touch and go for a lot of people.
0: That's <laughs> scary. That's not yeah. nice at all. And more positively, yeah. <laughs> um, one, I think I think everyone's. I think in August I went to uh, Rwanda and Tanzania, right? And everyone was like, "How? <laughs> you know, how did that happen?" And I think. More than in particular, folks in well, both of them are tourist hubs. Really, Tanzania, Tanzania in particular, and then Rwanda growing. Um, obviously, very similar to Burma faced a horrible genocide as well at one point. But um, how, why Burma? How how does that happen? How does that happen?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Um, you know what? It was just lucky, if I'm honest. Um, I was kind of sitting writing my dissertation one day. And we had this like forum page on our kind of university portal. And I saw a job advert for a consultancy company actually in Vietnam. They were, they were advertising for um, a position in Hanoi to work with, with farmers, um, to kind of evaluate how, how international funds were being spent to promote climate resilience. And I thought, well, this is an amazing opportunity. Kind of applied whilst being stressed out about my dissertation, and then got got so much more stress because i I'd, I'd got it <laughs> um and so yeah, handed in my dissertation and ten days later i was I was kind of sitting in Hanoi um thinking, my God, what am I doing? but um really excited about it um spent six months in in Vietnam until they said, you know we've got a position open in our in our Yangon office in Burma, do you want to go?' And I,
0: yeah, couldn't get there fast enough. So,
1: um,
0: yeah. You know, Vietnam, I know Thailand is, Thailand's almost a bit like Venice, isn't it? A gorgeous place that's almost been polluted by the addiction of people going there. But Vietnam and Thailand, they just, their geology is stunning. Like Mm. utterly, I'm not talking Hanoi. You know, I don't actually know where I'm talking. I don't know the names of the places, but rural, uh, some of the sort of coastal based places is just utterly stunning is is Burma i'm not really good in the geography over there is Burma landlocked
1: no it's no. got sea um to the south right um, and it has quite a long kind of i don't know what you call it
0: a long coastline no no like yeah, a peninsula it
1: out. juts out um ah, right. very far into the sea um as well so it's got a lot of like very good fish cuisine um and everything like that which is is really good
0: yeah, it's, it's a similar shape to India, isn't it? It's a different size, but... Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then tell us about your role in Burma as well.
1: So, yeah, it was, it was very much the same thing. So um, international funds would flow into the country and be spent on um, agriculture in one way or another, and they wanted um, a company to kind of evaluate whether it worked, um, whether, you know, the resilience had improved... Um, talking like saline resilient rice varieties and and that kind of thing it wasn't it wasn't a lot of it wasn't uh, you know much livestock over there because it's very subsistence um, but arable was more kind of on a on a larger scale um, which was really interesting you just got to tour Burma and and speak to speak to farmers about you know how how it was going and that kind of thing um a couple of projects was also trying to design the kind of next stage which i found more interesting to say look what are your what your problems here and it was on it was in rakhine state so it was it's coastal um and they were getting a lot of flooding instances that were just destroying the health of the soil it was just too um too much saline to to plant anything or grow anything so it's kind of like what can we do on an infrastructural level here to provide some project uh protection
0: right wow yeah, <laughs> yeah there are many folk that have done that <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's pretty cool that's amazing um yeah. it's funny isn't it I, I think i found myself in the 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 eternal dissertation stress twice because i've done two you all have done the same um and i always seem to find myself putting so much intricate time into stuff like not a Burmese job application, not at all, but you know, <laughs> that sort of thing. I don't know, it was like intense procrastination. Uh, how much did you do today? A ridiculous amount of well thought out work that wasn't my dissertation. <laughs> um And then you found yourself coming back, as you said, in good time. And I'm right in saying it was in good time, not even from a Burma perspective, but also from a COVID perspective, just before. Yeah. Is that
1: right? I, le- I flew in on the Sunday and we locked down on the Tuesday.
0: Um, oh, oh right okay right Jeez. yeah
1: yeah, <laughs> yeah okay. it's all that I, I kept seeing the news getting worse and worse and i was like "Hmm, maybe it's time maybe, maybe i need to fly home and uh yeah um settle settle in the uk get a get a job and and that kind of thing
0: well see it's funny um you hear this a lot folk are like uh you know oh i did this did that and then i thought i had to settle i sort of settled from uni and now i'm like hmm we're gonna go <laughs> <laughs> you know uh, yeah it's funny how everyone lives sort of the opposite but and is it right you're with a company called ProMars is that right ProMars yes yeah,
1: yeah. yeah ProMars International oh. um yeah I took a I took a little hiatus before ProMars if I'm honest I, I didn't quite know where I wanted to go I wanted to get out of the the kind of um moving abroad in developing countries career because I, I think it's hard to progress there without being problematic for like sure, yeah. local expertise, and you need to be raising local expertise up and supporting that, and to to build a career in that space is really difficult to do if you are conscious about that. So um, I knew I wanted to go into agriculture. I knew it. Want, I wanted to, it to be kind of sustainability or or climate related. Um, and it took me. I was doing other things for for six months, and then I, I saw this position at, at Promar um, who've kind of t- traditionally been a dairy consultancy. Um, but, uh, that's underselling them really to, to say that they've got, um, a lot of expertise. Um, I dunno how many of us there are now, but we're, we're a big group. And then they, they have the sustainability team, which sits kind of alongside the farm consultants teams. And, um, yeah, once I heard about what they were doing and where they wanted to go, I was like, yeah, this is the, this is the place for me, um, so thankfully I got that job as well. So <laughs> that's <laughs> always, sorry. sorry, on you go, on you go. It's always the, you know, when you you kind of look at a company and what they're doing and say, oh yeah, I, like I really want to join them, I really want to get involved and you kind of get your heart set on the application and that kind of thing. But um, thankfully
0: it, it came up good, so. It, and tell, tell us about that position, what's involved?
1: So yeah, um,
0: we kind of sit in between
1: um policy, retailers and farmers. Um, So we work very closely to, sorry, retailers and processors. So we work very closely to to dairy and and, um, beef and lamb processors who want to understand A, what their scope three emissions are. So which really means farmers, Mm -hmm. the the emissions of the farms that feed into the processes. B, how we can give farmers tools to reduce carbon intensity and again when I say that it's also tools to improve cost efficiency Um, and then also kind of keep our eye on policy to see what's coming in in the future and what you know where we need to get going and and get our gears going as a as an industry to stay on top of these changes so that we don't get caught out by it Um, comes back to that that stress level again. If we kind of have the tools that we need to prepare for things coming our way, then it's a less stressful time.
0: So this question is purely based on the fact that I don't think there are many folk in the country that speak for a longer period of time to a people in farming than myself and a few others. And there's there's a, a pretty underlying fear of what does this mean? You know, like carbon I think we all agree <laughs> we want to minimize and in some cases optimize carbon but minimize our production mm-hmm. um but things like carbon credits and and the the i don't know if it's scaremongering or or general reality that you know that the sort of quote unquote billionaires of the world will be able to buy up your credits and you won't be able... is is there are we leading into a scary time from a carbon perspective or are we leading into a good thing
1: for in terms of carbon credits? Yeah. The credit market. I'm a bit scared of it if I'm honest. Right. Um, I think it's a bit of a wild west out there at the minute. There are some good prices for carbon stocks being chucked around the place, which I think is very um exciting. If you're a farmer and you say, actually, yeah, I'm definitely sequestering and I can definitely change some of my practices. I might go from plowing to min till. And then I can sequester this this much more carbon, and then I can sell that for a, a really good price. Um, I'm nervous of the contracts that come with that, because you know, in order for it to done, be done properly, that's it. Then you you lock in that carbon; you can't do anything to kind of release that carbon. But what happens if you know if things change on your farm and you you need remedial tillage and and that kind of thing? Um, yeah, there there are a lot of people moving into that carbon trading carbon credit space. But honestly, I I wouldn't touch it with a barge pole if I, yeah, at the minute, it's just a bit of a, a scary one.
0: (laughs) Biological cryptocurrency.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, like all the carbon capture and storage stuff, they have this rock weathering, which is, you know, you, you take in carbon and you store it in rocks effectively. I've I've probably butchered that definition. (laughs) Um, but, you know that's that's different to us working with the soil like active carbon is and we have the carbon cycle it naturally releases carbon and, and hopefully it's taking in more than it's releasing um which if we're, we're looking after our soils it, it it should be um for the most part now and i just think hanging on to that it you you can chase improving carbon in your soil and it's something that we talk about a lot on a day-to-day basis but at the end of the day in order to do that you're just looking after your soil health and what farmer doesn't want to look after their soil health um so i think chasing that is really good because you know you're it will it will give back um locking yourself into a carbon credit contract I'm
0: not so sure about (laughs) yeah and it's it's one of those things like in my head and I don't think this will be anywhere near being finalized but in my head it's a you know when you get that payment when you whatever it feels like a one-off thing to me it doesn't feel like you can farm sequestration farm sequestration now I'm guessing given your topic you were at the 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 speech of the Nuffield conference this year on can you farm carbon you know (laughs) I feel like the way carbon credits will go is no, you can't because I feel like it's going to be a you've sort of sold your quota is not the word I don't know what the word is sort you've sold your your ability to sequester carbon this one time and I can't see that continuing. I could be completely wrong and I think in fairness I hope I probably am. Um, but does that then lead to the incentive of right? I've sequestered this carbon, let's release a ton and then put more back in. Like I don't know what the I don't know how that works. Uh, yeah, feels a bit reductive, but um.
1: Yeah. I mean, I hope this is where these contracts, the contracts are trying to, you know, get, get you to not release that carbon. So to, to kind of lock it in, there are so many techniques that we can do that will, I mean, it take, it'll take 20 years probably before we will be, you know, like, yeah, that we've definitely sequestered carbon here. Like we always give a five year figure and that's what we work to. We usually soil sample about 20% of a farm every year. So over a five, five years, you have a rolling average and you can see your 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 carbon in the soil increasing um, but what we're not i think we're not what we're not very good at is understanding what's the status quo so the status quo of our farming could be carbon sequestration um, and like this is coming from a perspective i believe that farmers should get paid for public goods like I, i'm a massive supporter of that like we work so closely to the environment and we do a lot of good we should we should get paid for that that public good that we're producing and and part of that public good is carbon sequestration so i'm definitely up for for farmers getting paid for for the good that they're doing here it's that contractual yeah i will do this and then for a hundred years i i will have to keep doing this and succession plans tenant farmings all of that thing is just an absolute model
0: yeah as and to be honest public goods carbon's arguably one of the easiest things in public good to quantify like because that's the tricky thing you know how do you and 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 a a gla- glaring general sort of stereotype the quote unquote farmer on the ground's probably going to know less than the person offering the contract and there's the worry mm-hmm. well can you easily get taken advantage of here but yeah it's an interesting one it's a it's a really interesting one
1: mm-hmm.
0: um which which sort of Puts us in quite nicely. Hattie to Nuffield. What? What? Why? Why Nuffield? Where? Where did you hear of that? And how did? How did it come to be?
1: Yeah, I heard of it through um uh, an ex colleague actually, Duncan Williams, who did his Nuffield um a few years ago. Um, I I had I'd always heard about Nuffield, but it takes a conversation with someone to say, oh you know go for it this is you know you're you're interested enough in your in your topic and that kind of thing to to really go for it so i took a bit of persuading to to get over the imposter syndrome of even applying um so I, yeah i just i heard that it was an absolutely amazing experience that if you were driven about a subject you need to do enough field because the the kind of support that you get to go chase something you're really interested in is is unlike any other really so um yeah that's ultimately it so i I stuck my application in and here i am really
0: (laughs) what is your topic what's it on
1: uh it's on resilience um particularly around uh climate volatility so how do we enhance our resilience as um as the dairy sector in the uk um if we're going to be experiencing um more instances of droughts more heat stress more flooding more climate volatility um how do we prepare ourselves for that how do we learn from farmers
0: who are already operating profitably under those conditions um yeah and and on that climate volatility is that linked with like we spoke about earlier financial volatility as well or is it strictly looking from a climate perspective
1: it it will touch upon financial volatility in the sense that um it's got a, a supply chain kind of aspect to it so i mean we saw the the Russia-Ukraine conflict, massively changed prices. Um, obviously climate climate crisis, climate change is a global phenomenon. It's not just gonna happen in the UK. So I definitely want to have a look at um, how supply chains will, might kind of um, look in the future. That's gonna impact our finances, but also, um, yeah, I think I need to do a bit of a baselining scope of the UK. So, what what will we look like by 2050? And that's obviously going to have a lot of um, impacts on our our financial sustainability as well.
0: And one question I love to ask folk is, where's that going to take you?
1: In geographically.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 yeah well, um, Career wise, probably of places, <laughs> but yeah, geographically.
1: Uh, geographically, so I'm going to go to US um india and mexico to particularly look at heat stress and they will hopefully give me a a different kind of balance of infrastructure levels um herd size genetics that kind of thing and then i'm going to go to the netherlands for flood uh, flooding flooding infrastructure and that kind of thing and then cuba um which i know is a bit of an odd one but we uh, look at supply chain instability where else to kind of look at yeah
0: true um,
1: yeah, agriculture under supply chain instability, then, then Cuba, who's obviously had to operate under an embargo for uh, the past however many years, so.
0: I hope you've kicked your feet up and got comfy and enjoying another fantastic episode of the R2Cast with another really interesting guest. I would just like to quickly take another second to plug the sponsors of the show today, the Scottish Farmer, and I would strongly advise you to go out and pick one up this week. And see even more of the fantastic people that are in our industry I, i've never understood that <laughs> I like i kind of get how and why it came about but i just don't yeah. get how that can still be the case i don't get that
1: yeah it's it's yeah. odd isn't it it's just it hang-ups from from um things in the past i guess but um yeah, it's it's quite interesting because I mean I'm I'm not the most knowledgeable. Like uh, over these two years, I will gain a, a deeper understanding of of what it's like. But it's just so interesting that they've they've had a lot of um kind of dairy targets and goals as a country. Like we will produce good um kind of Cuban um dairy a good Cuban dairy sector, and it's not really come to fruition. And it's it's how in it's how kind of linked that is to supply chain instability and that kind of thing, which I'm I'm really excited to to kind of look at and explore.
0: And you know, even away from Nuffield, you'll have to take a day to go to Havana just to see the the fact it's still sixty years ago. Yeah. Like so interesting. I've got a mate. He's actually, if you're interested, um, he's actually, I believe, between him and his partner they've been to 89 countries um yeah and they were just in cuba last month and oh, it's just like it's just what you think of the films in the 60s and 70s like it's yeah. just as if it's still the cold war you know like it, <laughs> the cars and everything it's quite interesting but um yeah netherlands who else could you possibly go to from the flood topic <laughs> i mean yeah geez, uh, they literally built a place, but um. Everyone seems to go New Zealand. Hey, sorry, goes to US. Everyone seems to go to US, and at first it annoyed me. I'm like, why? But like, why can't we just there's so many countries out there? And then I went there last month, and I'm like, ah, okay, <laughs> <laughs> it has everything. I mean, yeah. it's not, it's obviously not small, not the biggest country in the world, but it has everything. I mean, it's it's quite insane. Um, so what was that USA, Mexico, India. That will be interesting. Yeah.
1: Were you
0: were you in? I, I don't want to say hop over because I understand it's not next next to each other but were you in india or no
1: yeah and I, I went a couple times but only to um I convinced my parents instead of me flying home to the UK come visit and we'll we'll meet in India and oh, yeah. spend a couple of weeks there which was um which was good um yeah but I haven't actually chosen uh regionally where to go in India so um yeah I'll I'll have a bit of a look into that and see where we'll where do
0: best it's quite interesting because I mean India was um well for me i used to be a bit of a, a, a atlas geek who would read capital cities and populations and stuff and i always remember india being 960 million when china was 1.18 billion and yeah so you know almost quarter of a million behind and now it's number one you know and that's in my lifetime now that atlas was maybe from before my lifetime but um the the growth rate from a population perspective, is still exponential. I don't know when... I haven't looked at a graph to see when it looks like that will plateau, but it just never seems to show any signs of stopping. And with that, you know, supply chains must be under complete stress, complete strain, sorry. Um, that'll be interesting. That will be interesting. And um, this is maybe a, a, a sort of stereotype again, and I think... I, I used to say I shouldn't say stereotypes, but now I do because I think they're stereotypes for a reason. A lot of people probably think them. Countries like India, in my head, probably aren't focusing on sustainability hugely. Maybe that's completely wrong. You know, that, that'll be quite interesting to see uh, because, you know, number one priority is feeding at that point. You know, that's that's got to be. It's got to be more important, I think. Uh, yeah, or does it? I don't know. It's a tricky one. It really is a tricky one. Um. How long are you planning on going to India? India's a fascinating place.
1: I think maybe a week and a half, two weeks, yeah. I think. Um yeah, I need to be I mean, Promo I have a massively supportive of my NAFU journey, which I can't, you know, it's that I can't fault. It's um yeah. it's been really good. Um, but obviously balancing as well i need a good amount of time to research in our field and i need a good amount of time to do my day job <laughs> yeah, that's it. Um, but i think about yeah a week and a half and i'm particularly interested in the co-op or cooperative models over there because they're all kind of cooperative dairies um which is quite interesting so yeah I'll hopefully chat to some some co-ops and and then some farmers as well so i'm really excited
0: amazing amazing are you looking at doing the um like the aberystwyth thing the, yes yeah, yeah. the yeah. the conver- conversion
1: yeah. yeah um yeah i think so i'm I'm yet to kind of taste take the taster couple modules to see if i can i can fit it in in a in an average week but um i think it's such an, a good opportunity to convert the nuffield into uh,
0: a potential master so it's yeah, done a fair chunk haven't you so yeah, yeah. get another master's certainly at least <laughs> another pgc i've got one of each i might as well try and double off on one of them yeah uh,
1: <laughs> Yeah, that's it.
0: Um now here, Hattie, good stuff. It's really interesting. Do you know, I've I've really I've really enjoyed filming with everyone. Um for those listening, uh this actually we're actually 15 minutes late in recording, which was completely my fault. Hattie asked earlier if I was a foodie. And the reason I was late was because I was cooking. Uh but, um one thing I've really enjoyed uh was you know we I guess by the nature of Nuffield, it's progressive folk, yeah feels weird saying that when I am one of them, but you know what I mean? Um, and just speaking to everyone that, you know, we're just daft folk in a group chat. You know, that's all we are. That's all we are to me at the minute. And then you meet each other at a Nuffield conference. And even then it's still the case because we're still kind of not really involved this week. It's just a bit of fun and whatever. Um, but actually getting down and sitting chatting for an hour and being like, geez, like, first off, I probably focused on Burma a lot. I apologise. Really interesting to me. Um yeah, looking forward to the report. And I think there's no way I could read every Nuffields report on the planet, but I think I probably will read all of ours because I feel like I'm part of it all now, you know, uh, which is which is really nice. But um, before we finish off, Attie, there's two questions I ask everyone. No one gets away without them. Uh, I absolutely hate the first. I think it's a horrible question, but I ask everyone it. Um, the first one is, where do you see yourself in five years? And the second one is, if you had any advice for people coming into farming, what would it be? <coughs>
1: um... I should have been prepared for this. For this, to uh, yeah. before, shouldn't I, But <laughs> Five years. Um, I love what I do. Um, I love speaking to farmers. I like finding solutions which are cost effective. I want to do that on maybe a. a I want to work with people more, like networks more. I think, um, I personally don't work with um new entrants enough, like youth. Um, I I think getting on on platforms and and really learning from everyone is is key so i i hope i'm in a similar position um more of an expert about topics that um i absolutely love and i love to chat about and i hope i'm chatting to more people about them if i'm honest um so that will be my my five years um the second one
0: like advice or tips for people coming in
1: i think i would go for something that i didn't do and it's it's walk up farm drives and say, as you know, when you're younger and say, what can I do on a weekend when I'm out of school or what can, you know, just get out there and and get some experience on farm? I think um, obviously I'm coming from a position of somebody that that hasn't done that. But I wish that, that I'd done it because it's I think it's an amazing experience and, you know, you can't learn it from a textbook um, and if you're if you're passionate about food passionate about sustainable food and agriculture where else to start then then go get out there and and really do something practical on farm
0: Do you know it's funny you say that the first person we ever filmed with well no not true first person i ever started interviewing i didn't film with them because it started as written interviews for 26 episodes was flavian obiero and that was the first bit of advice that was ever given it's been the same question every time (laughs) Uh, and he said that's what he done you know came from kenya 14 i think he was um and his words were you know just this random kenyan lad going up farms trying to find a job and someone took him on and now look at him you know (laughs) he was all over posters at an off-field conference you know um yeah no it's a great way and it's i don't think people realize the power of that you know there's there's so you know i've sort of created a career off of social media and stuff and and that's got a power but the impact it has on a single person, you going and being like, like look, what's the crack and and I can get with? It's amazing. So yeah, no, absolutely. Um, no, listen, Hattie, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. It's been,
1: been fun to, be, to chat.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and I probably, I'll be honest, until about 10 minutes before when I was making that pork there and having a look at a, uh, having a look at your Nuffield story, I didn't think I was going to come into Burma to be, I'll be honest. So <laughs> uh, yeah, really, really cool chat. And, and thank you for sharing that. Um, for those of you listening, uh, as I said earlier, the next episode will be with uh, Amy Stoner. Amy looking at food security and her Nuffield story, um, which will be good there. Uh, the next one will be, the episode after that will be, yes, Kate Rawls. So many of you know, and Hattie just mentioned uh, Ukraine. I think the first time I ever spoke to Hattie, I was in Ukraine. <laughs> um, I was like trying to read some, I was basically in the passenger seat of the pickup at that point trying to arrange podcasts when I was in the passenger seat arranged four or five realized the time zones were different and had to start all over again when I came back um but uh with being in Ukraine I spent about 1400 miles with a lovely chap called Bill Rawls and albeit Bill and I have spent a total of about four days together I think you'll always have a special place in my heart because of that journey we experienced together um but Bill we got chatting turned out his uh, his son had listened to my podcast and all this and that was fine and uh he said oh my sister's got a really cool story and i was like okay cool what's this you know i'll be honest quite a lot of people here, you've got a podcast and someone's got a cool story and then it turns out it, i'm like i don't think i've got an episode out of that but oh my god <laughs> i haven't filmed this i'm going to be filming it in 45 minutes time um I would strongly advise you listen to 164 as well, which will be Kate Roll's story. I haven't filmed it yet, but I have an idea of what her story involves. And all I'm going to say is she cycled the height of South America in a bike she built out of bamboo. There's more to it. There's a lot more to it, but that's a small part. So, uh, yeah, quite an interesting woman. But Today's episode with Burma Carbon, and the future of Nuffield was with Hattie McFadden. so uh, very much another great episode there. Thank you all for listening, and we'll see you for the next episode, number 163, with Amy Stoner. See you then. I hope you've enjoyed another excellent episode of the R2 cast as much as I have, and I would just like to quickly thank our primary sponsors of the show today, Howden Rural, the new name for Aplan Rural. If you follow Howden Rural on social media, you'll see the plethora of work that they do to support this sector, and it's been a pleasure to work alongside them so far, and long may it continue. For more information about them, be sure to check out howdeninsurance.co.uk forward slash rural. And I'll see you for the next episode.